gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe here in this great hall of justice. Superheroes have to be around other superheroes. You know what I mean? That's the Hall of Justice is more about them just commiserating about their powers and less about them like actually fighting crime. So what uh what is this place anyway? Is this some type of fancy DMV? Are you kidding? It's the Hall of Justice. Seth Everett is the best there is at what he does, bub. And what he does is the Hall of Justice podcast. Go, go, go with a smile. Welcome to the Hall of Justice podcast. We thank you for listening. Thank you for the subscriptions and the kind words that you have been saying. Uh, last week's episode was incredibly well received. Michael Uslan. Oh my God, can that guy tell stories? Uh, as a matter of fact, that episode went so long, we cut it in half, and part two is going to air next week. Now you say, why didn't I put Michael Uslan part two this week? Well, because I had a special guest booked. And let's be honest, I like to go to the number one movie in the country, the, the box office smash, uh, when I can. And it turns out that he's a guy that's been on the podcast before, uh, Michael Lasker. Michael worked on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And through the fact that we're both Syracuse alums, was kind enough to come on the podcast. His life story is told in great detail in episode 219. We don't have to do that this time, because if you really want to know Mike Lasker's life story, go pause this podcast, go listen to 219. We do have a great conversation about Into the Spider-Verse. But then we said at the end of that episode, hey, uh, they're making a sequel. Can you come back when the second movie comes out? And there were two things that he said. Number one, he would have a new title. Couldn't tell me what it was, but he would have a new title. And yes, he would come back to the podcast. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is out. It's the number one movie in the box office. And Michael was the visual effects supervisor on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And with that, we welcome Michael Lasker back to the podcast. Congratulations on this. You, there was a glow in your, in your eye last time we spoke when you said the sequel's going to rock and I have a new title. I can't tell you what it is yet. I'm so excited. And I've been rooting for you during this whole process, watching your social media, talking from time to time. Congrats on across the spider-verse wow thank you and it's so great to be back you know i had a great time last time talking to you seth and uh i always i was always like oh i'm gonna be back talking about this <laughs> and um yeah it's true i'm a visual effects supervisor i was that role on mitchell's verse the machines and now this movie and um the last few weeks have just been insane it's been like an out-of-body experience you know you work on these projects for years Day in, day out, you pray people are going to like what you're doing, and then it comes out, and the public response has been great. The fan art, all of the intense emotion and great reaction for the film, and uh, and I love this work. You know, I worked on the first one. It just changed me as an artist and as a person, 
And then, yeah, this movie, when I, when I knew going on to this, I was like, what are they going to do? Because whether you like it or not, they're going to compare it to the first one. What are we going to do to bring it forward, to make it bigger, to continue the story? And uh, we basically made like 10 times the sophistication and just, you know, amount of cool toys and cool techniques and cool mm. stuff that we did on the first one. Um, and, uh, and we were just so thrilled with just everyone's reaction to it. It's very validating. It's been incredibly well received. Um, take me to, from the last time we spoke, you, you knew about the sequel. Um, when they, when you a find out, you said you, you, you were a visual effects supervisor on Mitchell versus the machines. When you find out you're getting this, you obviously have to know the plot you know i found out the plot about 10 days ago <laughs> you found out the plot about three years ago right um what you was know, I, yeah well let, let, let me pop, let, let me phrase it this way what was your reaction to getting the script the first time when you found out when it was literally a pdf on your computer that this movie was going to be what this movie became well, you know, at first I was like six universes. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the 42 Spider-Man? <laughs> well, even, not even at that point. I mean, the first film was really tough and that we had to kind of recreate every principle of, of sh making a movie and making an animated movie. And so the look of Miles's world was a look that we had sort of created from the ground up. Had to, you know, we had to figure out how to do it. And it was tough. It was hard. And on this film, that look was like the easy part of the film, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, so coming on, looking at all of the aspirational artwork and photography reference and everything that they wanted to do with all these different worlds, Gwen's world, Hobie's world, Miguel's world, you know, the, uh, you know, all these different looks inspired by different artists and visual styles. And that was what was so daunting because on the first film, you know, 80% of it, 90% of it was in Miles' world. We dip into Gwen's world very briefly. We see Penny's world, Spider-Noir's world, but it's all really quick. This had substantial amounts of time in these other universes. So they had to stand on their own. They had to be very sophisticated. Uh, they had to look just very fleshed out. And that was really the, just kind of the eye-opening, oh, okay. This is how we're going to make it bigger and better. And how are we going to do that? We had to just really do exactly what we did in the first one, start from the ground up. There were very few tools that we could really bring into those worlds that we had. So I worked with this amazing team of wizards and we basically built all of these, these, these tools and techniques that we had to teach all of our artists and to flesh out and work with the directors. Because in the end, my job is to make their dreams come true to work with the directors, bring their visions to life. Uh, but coming on, that was what I saw before all the spider people, before all of that, it was like these worlds we had to build um, from the ground up for nothing. And that was what was- So is that your your first reaction when you see the the overall plot of this film? Maybe not a script, but the, the, the treatment of this movie and what's going to happen, your brain is like, well, we have to build this world and we'll have to build this. And we'll have to build this. At any point, do you come home from work 
whether it's your spouse, your family, your uncles, whoever you, you, you choose to say, and you go, you know, it's really good. Like it might be better than the first one. Yeah. And that's debatable, by the way, for those of you listening, don't come at me and don't come at Michael. Like it, it, the, the, you can like the first one more. That doesn't mean this one's less than the difference is at, at some point. The reason I'm asking this is I want to understand what it's like when really talented people make bad shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it, you know? it blows yeah. me away. So like, so when you are working on all this, you come home and you're just like, by the way, this movie rocks. Like, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. Like something like that. I don't know. Do, does that go through your head? Well, it's tricky because when you're actually in it and, and these types of films evolve over the course, I mean, I started very early on. So the story was definitely in sort of a rougher state where, and the story continues to be rewritten and honed and evolved and changed as you go. Um, I think I very quickly saw the potential. I, I'm always, I always like to think that I'm good at seeing where things are going to go. When I came on the first Spider-Verse, I was actually going to work on the Meg <laughs> movie. And they're like, what well, we have this animated Spider-Man movie? And in my head, I was like, oh my God, this sounds like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> And I mean, I love the first film. It changed me as a person, um, you know, and I think you can love them both equally more, one more than the other. But when you're in it, you know, I'm very focused on the task at hand, what we need to develop visually to make this film happen. So a lot of the story and the script is sort of changing while I'm focused on all these other things. So from our vantage point, it very quickly became clear, and this is really just to the, to the crew, to the, the, these, this core group of just unbelievable technical and, and just artistic, you know, very smart people, that the look was going to be something never, no one ever saw before. And that's why I wanted to get into this business. All I ever wanted to do was make stuff no one's ever seen. And I remember we were, we were working on test shots because we always do test shots before you even have real shots in the film. We do test shots. And they're actually test shots that made it in to the first film, the original teaser for the first film, there were shots that were never even in the movie. Hmm. You do that to flesh things out. And I remember we did a test shot looking down at the Guggenheim of Gwen on top of the, of the ledge, looking down at the searchlights. It was based off of this really good visual development painting. And the artist that did it, she was like Kelly Christopher. She was like, you know, Mike, this is really going to change cinema. It's going to be like something people have never seen before. And I was like, you were, you know, it had the dripping watercolor, like the little headlights of the cars down below were just streaking. And I was like, I just, it just looked so amazing. And very quickly, because you see everything they want to do. Um, and you, you just see where it's going to go. And very quickly knew it was going to be great. As far as the story, there's no way to know, you know, especially from my vantage point, you hope it's going to be great. Chris and Phil are brilliant at what they do. Um, I knew the story was going to be good, but, you know, just focusing on sort of animation, layout, look, there's so many things, like no day was boring. Like I, there was not a moment in this production in three years that I was bored. And, and, I, and I could get into the complexity, the meetings we had, the characters, there was nothing easy in the film, like zero. Anything you thought would be easy was not, it was very hard, but it was exhilarating the whole time. The um, the interesting part about the the evolution of this film, and I, this it's already made you know 
the majority of its box office. You know, it's it, it the next step is you know home video and streaming and th- things like that. And I I said when we did the review that I I need to see this movie again to properly process. Like there's there's stuff I missed the first time, but I think the my 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 complaint with that was that I saw it in the theater. Mm. It just sounds weird because a movie this dense, and that's what it is. It's dense. You need to be able to pause and rewatch scenes. And I relish the opportunity, whether it's, uh, you know, if, if it comes out on home video, I'll, I'll own it. Uh, if it goes on any streaming service, I'll, I'll have it, you know, whatever it is, I will see that movie multiple times. But I think I liked Into the Spider-Verse more on my third and fourth watching of it mm-hmm. than the first one in the theater. Right. And, you know, the first one, I remember we went to a Marvel screening and I remember that was pre-COVID and we were like, we, we were with an audience and people were cheering and it, you, you get into the, the emotion of the whole thing. But I think that these movies are conducive, like this movie will live on and have a whole new shelf life because anyone who saw it, like my thing is, I'll give it like an eight or a nine. I can't give it a 10 yet because I have to see it again and again and again because yeah. there's so many things. And there have been people, when we did the review, people came to me on social media and they were like, did you see this scene? And I'm like, no, I didn't put, <laughs> I, I missed that. I, what was I doing? I looked down for a second. Like, it's that dense a movie. Yeah, it, it's that dense. And, you know, I, I've been looking forward, you know, I love that it's in theaters and doing well, but I, and I, I foresee when it goes to streaming, and it goes to DVDs, there's going to be another whole sort of round of things that people missed. Because, like, I know there's tons of stuff people have missed. Um, and, you know, the, the movie's really dense. There's a lot in there. I think that's one of the, the strengths of the filmmakers is that there's so much passion and love put into every frame. And one thing that was very different about this than doing the first one, when we did the first one, we didn't really realize that every frame was going to be focused on and mm. picked apart. You see and that I, Twitter account that does a, a frame of the first movie every oh yeah. day? Oh, yeah. They, they just post frames of the movie. And I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah, account. And, you know, I don't feel like there was a huge amount of that going on before the first one. Maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't ever really notice, you know, in every frame just being analyzed. So as we rolled into this, we kind of for knew that going in subconsciously, consciously. So every shot, every frame was poured over. And there are tons of Easter eggs, whether it's graffiti and posters. I mean, my daughter is in an ad in a subway over Gwen's head as she comes off. No way. <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, there's the, and, and the other thing is, it's such an artistic film. And this, the first one was like that too, in that, and I always tell artists when they come on, if you have an idea, if you have a concept, you have a cool technique and you show it, it will make it into the film because it's a film made by like a thousand artists. And that's another reason why it's so dense with amazing stuff because everyone's got ideas, no ideas out of bounds. And um, it's just uh, it's part of what makes it fun. But I, I do know it's dense and I, and, I, and I keep seeing that people have seen this movie a lot of times, three, four, five times. And, I mean, it's amazing that they've done that. I mean, even for me, you know, you work on the film, you work in sort of subsections of it, you know, over the course of time. 
when I went to the premiere and I saw it with like the, the crowd and everyone was into it, it was like I was seeing it for the first time. Yeah. yeah which was amazing to me. That must have been a blast. Oh my God. And like, you know, since then, obviously I've seen it more and it's weird when you work on these things because you've, it's evolved over the course of time. So seeing it in its final, final state versus how it got there was really interesting too. Um, but I just love where they landed with the music and the sound, you know, stuff kind of going on in tandem with when we're working on it and just uh, just the, the soundtrack and the score. I mean, it's so good. Just on all cylinders, I thought they really nailed it. I thought one of the compliments of the movie uh, that was on social media were the complaints that people didn't know it was a cliffhanger. <laughs> like you had told me, and I, I had read it a, a, a bunch of times. Like I, I knew that this was part one of two. Yeah. And people were like, what? That's how it ends. I got to wait a year for this. Like the people were, and they were, to me, that was a, it was a backwards compliment because people have to find something to bitch about. And if that's the worst case scenario, the fact that it's a cliffhanger, I, you know, I, I, I wondered, you know, yeah, you know, it's a pretty good thing. You know, I mean, listen, it's great that people are like angry. <laughs> the movie's over. You know, it's like a two hour and 20 minute movie. Um, yeah, it's not short. And for yeah. animate for animation, those usually don't go over two hours. I think it's the longest U.S. animated movie of all time. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Wow. It wow. Um, and it's another uh, reason why I want it on home video. It, it was about 3,000 shots, 3,000 shots. I mean, to put it into perspective, I think one of our Hotel Transylvania movies was 1,200 shots. So it's 3,000 shots of the most, of the hardest type of work you can imagine doing in animation with hundreds of artists and the coordination and getting it done on time. And it just, it's so difficult and just challenging and sort of like you have all these different emotions that swing around every day. But, but yeah, I mean, people, uh, you know, I think there aren't that many movies that kind of end that way these days. You know, I mean, at the end of Empire Strikes Back, you know, it, it you knew there was going to be another one. It wasn't the ending to the film. Right. You know, Han Solo's in Carbonite. The Rebels have just gotten beaten up. It's not going to end that way. Um, so, you know, I think I think it, it definitely hits you on the nose, kind of shocking at the end. And, you know, it goes to black to be continued. Uh, but, you know, if people are going to get mad that the movie's over, I mean, I'm, I think I'm okay right. with that. Well, right. <laughs> we can use this as the new sports example. You know, when people say, you know, one of the big arguments a couple of years ago about baseball before they changed the rules was that it was too long and boring. Right. I said, well, nobody talked about Avengers Endgame and said, boy, I wish that was shorter. <laughs> exactly. Like if, if you suddenly came out and said there was a three and a half hour version of it, you'd say, sure, sign me up. Where do I sign? Yeah. You know, there's uh, there's this rumor now about uh, Val Kilmer's uh, Batman Forever that there's like this Schumacher cut. And oh, yeah. We yeah, we talked about it last week on the podcast and people were like, be like a three and a half hour Val Kilmer Batman movie. Sure. Where, where can I go see that? Like uh, time love, is not the issue as long as it's quality. I love Batman. I loved, I, I, you know, I've seen them all. I love the Robert Pattinson Batman. I just love really? that. I did. I liked it. I, you know, I, I just thought it was really dark. It was different. Um, you know, I would love to do a Batman animated movie. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> yeah, there very... there have been some amazing ones. I mean, Mask yeah. of the Phantasm is 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 pretty incredible. But yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, there, there have just been some some incredible Batman uh, animation just in general. I mean, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but that would be fun. But, the uh, but yeah. the, the yeah. spot, um, a lesser known uh, bad guy, uh, and I'm going out of order because I, I don't want to just rehash the film. But um, I knew the spot from the '90s Spider-Man animated series. Did part of the spot's insertion because technically Spider-Man has so many rogues, you could insert a much better well-known bad guy was the visual of what he could bring and the fact that it could be multidimensional. Like the spot was a real cool look on the John Semper series of the, of the nineties. Is that why they put the spot in here? Is that, is that why he plays such a vital role because the look of him is so unique? I mean, as far as the original reason why they used him in the story, I'm really not sure. Um, his look was one of the hardest that we had to figure out, which is, says a lot because there was a lot of hard characters. You know, he was supposed to be sort of the absence of color. It was like you erase the frame and then you kind of drew him on top of it. And he went through some iterations of design and he we landed on like this kind of sketched and then painted over like... Um, framework of a body where he's got like line work like you draw him uh white paint for highlights ink wash for shadow mm. and then he's got his spots themselves which uh animation would control and then we, then effects would create them all these different inking techniques and they were almost their own characters where as over the course of the film when he starts to discover his powers more the ink gets more active in the first scene in the bodega the spots are very contained they're very sharp and then as he moves along, they get crazier and crazier. And then he ultimately becomes his end of movie self, which honestly, was some of the, my, I was like the happiest with where he turned out. Some of my was happy of where things turned out in the film. I mean, gorgeous shots of him, but uh, he was very tricky because when we do these films and things animate and move, you have to figure out how to bring paintings to life. I mean, drawings to life. And for him, we always wanted him to look like he was active. The ink lines are redrawing the brush strokes are repainting, the ink spots are moving around and active. So he's kind of like this organically moving uh, character, but at the same time, very simple looking too. So you needed the simplicity, but like the, the sophistication of his movement. Um, so that, that was what was tricky with him because he's, he's like this glowing white character. Like how do we light him into scenes? Does he light things up? Is he like a ghost? How does he exist in there? You know, it, it's a tricky thing to make look integrated into a shot when it's just like this glowing white figure. Um, it was similar, actually, I mentioned Hotel Transylvania before when we would do Mavis and Dracula where they'd have these jet black suits and then these bright pale faces. Mm. <laughs> like, how do you get them to look good at these shots? It was similar with him because he was so graphic, but, uh, but very cool character, very complex. And I just loved how he started off as kind of a joke villain. And then he becomes this horrifically scary being by the end. You're like, wow. oh my God, how are they going to stop this guy? Right. right? You, you take it to another level. It just, it's, it's wild. Um, I think it's important also, you know, because it is a thrill ride that the first, I don't know how long, you probably know to the second, the first little chunk of it before 
uh, Spider-Man 2099 shows up with uh, with Jessica Drew, where you're just basically in Gwen Stacy's world. Mm-hmm. And you have to process, number one, that her best friend was Peter Parker, but that he was the lizard. Yeah. And, you know, she's accused of causing his death and by her father. And like you get into this story, you're emotionally into that story. And it's almost like. I knew because I I saw every trailer like this movie gets bonkers. So I was like, it's not going to be this slow in the beginning. But I thought the key to the whole thing is just get you emotionally connected to the story before you say, all right, the ride's about to begin. Uh, I, you know, I, I loved that it was all before the opening credits. You know, you go on this entire... I didn't even realize, you're right. It's the uh, the opening credits don't even come on. I, I, they you're don't right. even come on. For the first 20, I think it's 25 minutes. It was like, That's seven, it was like six or seven sequences. Um, and we are in that Guggenheim for a while. And that is a complex battle. And Gwen, the look of Gwen's world was probably our most challenging look. It's watercolor. It's based on her emotions. Every shot looks different. When we're in the apartment, especially later in the film, but it's, it's so it's so at the beginning, every shot looks different. Every shot's like a different painting. And it's how she's feeling, right? And these emotions. And yep. it just hammers home like what her mood is. Because it's like a mood ring, her, her, her world. And sometimes it just goes to complete white. And we just frisk it in some paint, like when she's swinging out the window on her way to the Guggenheim. Or it's like you're in the Guggenheim and it's all like wet with watercolor. And then we have all these other characters we have to integrate. But I loved, I just loved the feel of the opening. I loved how it was Gwen, which is on the stage with her bandmates. And she runs, you know, she runs out of there all mad. She goes out and she has that beautiful flashback where she sees Peter is a lizard. In the first movie, we definitely teased that moment where we showed the lizard as a silhouette and then we show Peter on the ground and she's over over top of him. It was great to kind of get more into that moment. And then especially with her and her father and, and that sort of just, yeah. um, When you she know. reveals it, when she reveals it, oh my God. Yeah, and that was one of the hardest shots. And we, and we developed this technique of dripping paint. And in every scene in Gwen's world, we have dripping paint, but we enhance it. And that scene where she pulls her mask off, you'll see all of the dripping paint behind her, the background going away. And we actually called it Gwen Vision, just internally in this moment. That makes sense, yeah. Where like the background is gone and you see paint splattering and and, and, like all these wild textures, but it's just the two of them and he's pointing the gun at her in those close-ups of George Stacy with the gun and he's all watercolor. Those were some of our earliest shots in that world but we had to figure out how was this going to look. And, um, but yeah, I just, uh, it was great. And then, you know, once Jessica Drew and Miguel show up and, uh, you know, you have the slow-mo close-ups of Gwen looking at Miguel and Miguel coming by behind Vulture's wing. Those are some of our earliest shots that we did. Um, just really, really love those moments. And then the Guggenheim itself, very complicated environment. We built five or six different versions of the set with different heights, with different sizes just to, to work with the performance and the action. And we destroyed that thing, you know, multiple, multiple times. Um, but yeah, I just loved that it. it was the beginning of the film. Before you even get into the story of Miles and everything, you've- Right, before you even see Miles, you've, you've gone through an emotional journey. And I knew that the, the audience would not be expecting it at all, at <laughs> all. It would be like a surprise that you got this Gwen backstory and then 
bringing her up into the present, basically. Right. Um, and what was also tricky, which I haven't seen anyone actually talk about, was, you know, we have a lot of different versions of these characters at different ages. So mm. when Gwen is fighting in the Guggenheim, that's the Gwen from the first movie. She's got her costume from the first movie. She's got her haircut from the first movie. When she's in the prom scene. She's the guy that went to the school with Miles, right. That's pre-first uh, movie. Right. Um, and then later on she comes in and she's grown up and she's got a new haircut and new costume. But um, but yeah, she's got her ballet slippers in that Guggenheim fight like she did in the first film. That's nuts. Uh, that's, that's, that's bonkers. It was a lot to keep track of, I'll tell you that. People often ask me, how do I keep motivated? And uh, how do I keep my spirits up? Well, things are, are moving forward instead of backwards. I think every neuroscientist in the world, if you lined them all up and asked them the same question, can the spinal cord be repaired, they'd say yes. That is the voice of Christopher Reeve. Whether this is your first time ever hearing the Hall of Justice or you've listened to over 300 of the episodes that we've put together since this podcast was created in 2015, the superhero genre owes a great deal to the role Christopher Reed played as Superman. Partnering with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is an honor for the Hall of Justice podcast. In 1995, the accomplished actor was paralyzed after being thrown from a horse during an equestrian competition. After his accident, he lobbied for spinal injury research, and that led the man who once played Superman to the foundation that bears his name. Here's the origin story from the foundation's CEO, Maggie Goldberg. So when Christopher Reeve was injured in 1995, he was looking at all of the other organizations in the country and really around the world. Um, and there weren't that many that were searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury. And what he loved about our organization at the time, which was the American Paralysis Association, is that we were funding research. We, we, our mission and sort of theme was considered a laboratory without walls. We wanted to fund the best research no matter where it was in the world. And one of the other parts of the mission was bringing researchers together and to share information, which wasn't really something that was done at the time. Researchers you know, can be very competitive. They hold their information close to the best. So I think that's what really drew him um, most to this organization. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is dedicated to curing spinal cord injury by advancing innovative research and improving the quality of life for individuals and families impacted by paralysis. We are on the cusp of a new era in spinal cord injury where real cures are within reach. The Reeve Foundation serves as a catalyst at this critical moment uniting academics, scientists, and industry in a new model of collaboration. The Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation is really the only national paralysis foundation focused on a dual mission. Today's care, tomorrow's cure. We are searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury, paralysis, 
caused by spinal cord injury, but we also provide services and programs for people impacted by all types of mobility impairments. So when you think about paralysis, it's not just spinal cord injury, it's stroke, ALS, MS, um, in addition to spinal cord injury. And we're here to really help people navigate their journey through paralysis, whether or not they were diagnosed or impacted from you know, yesterday, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. This partnership is not the only tie Christopher Reeve has had with this podcast, even though it was created 11 years after his passing in 2004. In the 1970s at Juilliard, Christopher Reeve was good friends with Kevin Conroy. Little did they know then that while Christopher Reeve would be the embodiment of Superman, Kevin Conroy would be known as the voice of Batman. And Kevin was kind enough to come on this podcast during his illustrious career five times. Tragically, Dana Reeve passed away in 2006, and the foundation was renamed the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. I asked CEO Maggie Goldberg how listeners of the Hall of Justice podcast can participate and help the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. There are many ways to get involved. The easiest is to go to our website at ChristopherReeve.org. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle is at Reeve Foundation. Um, there, you could become an advocate. You can run a marathon and join Team Reeve. You can become a fundraiser. You can help us spread the word. You can become a volunteer. All of that is outlined at ChristopherReeve.org and we invite you to become part of our family. In the weeks and months to come, we are going to organize some walks and some activities that can raise money for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. But for now, if you are hearing this for the first time, the fifth time, or the tenth time, go to ChristopherReeve.org, get the newsletter, and find resources in your area. I'd like to think that if we had this podcast in the time that Christopher Reeve was alive, he'd want to be a part of it. He'd want to be a part of the show. And he'd want us to spread the word about this foundation. Thanks to you, the listeners, we are going to do that. I think in order to accomplish something, somebody has to go out there and put out a vision that makes it seem more real, more tangible. Miguel, uh, let's talk about Miguel O'Hara, uh, Spider-Man 2099. Do you go into this, and this might be a question more for the writers uh, or Joaquim or somebody, who knows? Are you supposed to know that he exists? Are you supposed to know anything about his comic book history? Because you can watch Into, into the Spider-Verse. You have never heard of Miles Morales, and you're fine with it. Like, you're, you meet Miles Morales for the first time, and then you leave into the Spider-Verse and go find a comic book and find out the Miles Morales story from the source material. It's such a unique character because there was a book. I know where there was a book. I've seen the book. Yeah. I read the book. Um, but it's such a unique person that could have come in here. Like, just to, what what's your thought on the way Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099, 
who in the first movie is kind of a, a joke, you know, sort sort yeah. of like it's, it's a bit, but there's a massive comic book history that I would say what eight percent of your audience knows. You know, I think when they make the film. I don't think they really expect people to know. I think they want you to be able to go in there and sort of learn who he is through the film, even without having any backstory prior knowledge. I mean, we had, you know, we had the book you're talking about and did a lot of research and this and that. And, mm -hmm. but, you know, we kind of treated him as like, you're going to lear learn who he is. And there are scenes where you find out about his family and sort of they tease kind of how we got his powers and everything. But you know, I don't think you were really expected to know much about him. I mean, especially at the end of the first one, it was more that, you know, he got an interdimensional watch and there's Lila, his assistant. And, and mm -hmm. it, was, it was a pretty quick scene. Um, but, you know, we definitely brought him up to the next level in this one. And even Lila, his digital assistant, also went through an overhaul, just enhanced just the tech and everything. And, you know, with him and his new design, he had his visual style from his world built into him. Very complex suit, very complex character, but, you know, just loved, and we had to design him with his costume on. We had to design him with his, with his face and his hair and what would happen with the suit, you know, was destroyed. And, and we actually had a whole casual costume designed for him that you actually only see in some of those really quick insert videos that he's watching of his console. Um, but, but yeah, I think going into it, he, he wanted to start fresh, kind of learn who he is through the film. Didn't really, you know, expect the audience to know that much about it. I just, I just wonder, in the first movie, Miles Morales' stock rose in the comic book realm, you know, just in the, in the pop culture realm. Do you think Miguel O'Hara's interest now grows? Because oh, I would think so. And I can tell, I mean... You know, just going on social media, I'm pretty active. I mean, I love seeing all the fan art and people yeah. are, you know, really into his look, you know, and his hero, you know, suit. And, and, and you know, they love, you know, drawing his face. The costume is, is fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, I mean, it's great. There's so many intricacies to that costume that I think, I think will be able to be seen once people are able to pause because he's got, it's, it's basically a digital projected suit. And there's static, and there there's little lights moving around, and on the red parts of this suit, the red part glows, and within the red, there are all these circuitry lines that have little bits of electricity moving around. Uh, we have a whole visual style for 2099 that has line work that traces him and comes off his shoulders and is within his suit. Um, you know, we have his mask kind of comes off and on in certain ways, and we built like a internal structure to the suit. So as it comes off, you have kind of a leading edge of pixels. And then within that, you have this, this kind of electrical web work that if you kind of flip through it and whether he's kind of getting zapped by miles or when his mask comes off and he's about to bite the vulture, you kind of see kind of how the suit works. But a uh, very intricate character. We built an entirely new system of brush stroking for his face. So when he moves his face around, he looks like he's been kind of paintbrushed and drawn. And, um, and his hair is done a certain way, and we brushed his hair so it looked painted. Uh, but killer character. Another very right. complicated thing about, you know, these characters in general, but especially him is, you know, they're very muscular, right? But you have this logo on his body that you always want to read that logo. But if it's really right. mapped on, it's going to be rippling around, and it's not going to be graphic. So things like that that no one expects. We have to figure out new techniques how to do it. So no matter where he is, you want to see his logo graphically and sharp, 
even though he's got pecs and abs and lats and you know it's more of a technical thing but i mean i could go on and on about that uh, he's voiced by oscar isaac it's just it's it's remarkable uh, the whole oh, thing is, great just like, the, the whole thing is is just uh remarkable take me through the processes processes is that the right english i think so processes of the incarnations of jessica drew because what i again i know a little bit i I know about as much about jessica drew as i know about miguel o'hara but i know that she doesn't look like that (laughs) and the poetic license of when you are super loyal to the source material versus twist it and turn it what what goes into the process of deciding look it's a multiverse so there can be different versions of each person and you Mm -hmm. see there's different peter parkers there's different this there's different that turns out there's a different miles morales we can get into all of them but the decision to make her look nothing like her comic book counterpart what's Mm -hmm. the thought process there you know the time i come on this show they actually already figure that out and i think the you know the directors and visual development so they give you a model and they say this is what she looks like you know they give us paintings so uh-huh. she wasn't completely ironed out yet but i mean the design was there um and uh you know what her suit was going to be how pregnant she was going to be um her bike actually went through a lot of additional design once we came on the show because we wanted it to be a convincing motorcycle so uh, we, we had some motorcycle experts on the crew. So we kind of went through and moved the engines around, the gears, and made sure it actually would work like a bike. Um, but her design more or less was pretty much there. Um, and she had so many intricate style cues. Her, her goggles were very sort of yellow and, and almost tune shaded around her eyes. And her, her, her red leather jacket had very stylized reflections and she sort of had her own visual style of sort of comb brushing and intricate reflections on her suit. And we always wanted like her yellow to pop, like the yellow triangle on her suit in the front and the back and the bike. That was one of her big things to kind of match her goggles. But I mean, as far as the design, I mean, that was already, the decisions had already been made. So when I came on, it was my job to help sort of help them iron it out and then bring her to life, basically. No, I, listen, none of this is a criticism. I just, no, no, I, no. I, you know, I, I, I try think... to ask unique questions as much as I can. Yeah. Um, well, that's it... why last week, last week, yeah. and in case uh, this is also for the audience, if you missed last week, uh, my favorite part of the Michael Uslan po- pro- uh, podcast, I literally say Batman Returns comes out, right? And he's flying high. And this is before Tim Burton leaves, before Michael Keaton leaves. Was there a dinner? Was there a conversation? Was it a, a note where he said, hey, how do we get Michael Keaton and Christopher Reeve on the same screen? Right, right. Why? Because nobody's asked Michael Uslan that in his 40 years. Like, try to ask the most unique thing you can. Like, try to make make this podcast as good as it can be, possibly be. Yeah. Um, they also wind up using Julia Carpenter um, the other Spider Woman, and that's the Spider Woman from the '90s Marvel Action Hour uh-huh. <laughs> that I remembered, and that's Jessica Drew is from the the Spider Man, the uh, Spider Woman uh, series that's on Disney Plus. That was one of the first things I watched when Disney Plus came out because I'd never seen that. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to see something new. I wanted to see something that I hadn't done before. 
Mm-hmm. And that really spoke to me. I, like, I was like, that was a show? There was a, there was a Jessica <laughs> Drew show? But then in this, I yeah. didn't know if that was Julia's mother or Jessica Drew's mother. I Who is right. this person? And I'm curious to know like what people are thinking when they say, all right, we're going to have this, this character, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be like anything you've ever seen. Yet, when Miguel comes in, he's exactly as you expected him to be seen. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think you definitely have to ask the filmmakers. I I think that they wanted an original character, and I love what they did with Issa Rae, and and, and I just thought she was just a kick-ass, you know. Oh, she's great. Uh, The the, the, uh, the performances, the the voice performances in this are incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Spider-Punk, Obi Brown. How do you make him look like that? Yeah, he was. I, I, I don't know if a if a podcast can do justice to how different he looks like from any other character. And in the screen, everything around his body is of a certain animation style. And then everything else is a different animation style. And in some cases, multiple animation styles. Yeah, That's I mean, how dense this movie is. He was very hard because, yeah, like you said, I mean, we have all these different animation styles and then we have him who has to look even more different than everybody else. Right. It was actually very similar to Vulture. We kind of used similar techniques because they were both on a piece of paper. But with Hobie, he was supposed to really, the, the desire of the, of the directors was every frame, it was like you were, you were like arranging pieces of paper every frame and, and, right, right, right. Him and taping him and, and he was... His whole world is based off of like mid seventies rock posters and photocopies and right. just sort of like those kinds of, of textures. So we had to go through a lot of development and we had to create a lot of different looks that animation could sort of own. And they, and they would, so they would animate him on fours and sixes. And that was one of the other things is typically we would animate on twos, which we really did a lot of the first movie. So we wanted to make him a lot more different. And I'm talking about frame rate. So he his frame rate would change, you know, as he would perform. We could split off his guitar or his arm and have that move differently. And so the they, animation could control all of his different looks, all of his different frame rates as he moved around. And then we would take him into lighting and effects and apply all these looks. And right. then we'd have like his paper edges. That's correct. And, and we built the line tool that would constantly be moving. So, you know, so if he's just like standing there, he's actually pretty static. But as soon as he starts to move, the paper changes, the colors change, the line changes. And I love what Kaluuya did with the voice. I mean, people like, and when we were doing, when we were making the movie, I don't think we really understood that he would steal every scene. And watching it back from start to finish, every time he was on screen, he just kind of stole the show. Uh And, um, you know, what was another tricky thing was, we wanted to make sure his face and his performance could read. So we had to light him in a way that we didn't stomp on his mouth and his nose and his eyes, even though we were pushing it super graphically, you still wanted to be able to read his performance. And I love his relationship with Miles. Uh-huh. I was kind of like a big brother. And it's not what you were expecting. Uh, you kind of thought that there'd be like this love triangle kind of thing. Didn't really end up that way. And, uh, but yeah, he was just really, really hard. Everything from his hairstyle to his face to, his mask and his guitar and just uh but very tricky and making him feel like he's in the scene but standing out and that's one of the harder things to do with these characters is to make them look like they're not in there but also in there but that they're in there and and everybody has their 
their their their original or their designed look. I mean, the yeah. best example of that, not to bounce around, but uh, when when everyone's in the in the frame, uh, spectacular Spider-Man. Oh yes, it's traditional two you know, D animation right in the middle of all this stuff. I and tell you, it, I could not wait. To he stood out so much. I couldn't wait because there were all, people were like, "I hope he's in there. I hope we see him." This and that, and I just I was personally, I wanted Christopher Daniel Barnes, the '90s version, but that's all right. There's still a third movie. Right, right, right. Yeah, so there's still time. But no, I was I was so excited because he's in there a bit. He's got his moment where he steps forward and he's very. We we tried to stay extremely faithful to to the to the source material and tried to keep him very tune shaded. He was really just had. A, like a light side and a shadow side and it was very tuned um but uh but yeah we we really went through a design process on him and he, he's in there a bunch of times oh, and, uh, and in the chase at the end or in, you know near the end but i was really excited for the fans to, to see him it was it was bonkers i mean yeah. bonkers uh, the whole thing is just bonkers. like you said at the same time he's cartoon and he has to fit into this more sort of fleshed out sophisticated cgi lighting. yeah modern look and he yeah. looks like that, and it just he, he stands out. You mentioned Daniel Kaluuya uh, earlier last year. He did the uh, the Arsenal documentary, All or Nothing, mm. and it was just his voice, and he spoke so eloquently about the team. I mean, somebody wrote it for him. I'm I'm not I'm not saying he just he just waxed poetic about his his favorite uh, football team, but I'm an Arsenal fan, and listening to him tell the story of the team you get a sense of his voice just as his voice, you know, mm. not, not his face, right. not black Panther or not any of the scary movies that he's in or any, anything. So when he's in this, you're like, wait a minute, that's him. Yeah. And, you know, and I love that he, you know, he, you can understand what he's saying. Some words are a little harder than others, yeah. but it makes the more authentic, you know, you know, it's kind of oh, like his he, recording session must've been amazing. Like, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, and he is, is who he is and he's just such a, such a unique original character who's just like and you know once you see the film you can kind of go back and say, oh i saw what he was doing there oh i saw he was planning to build that watch and you know he's so anti-establishment and i just loved how you know where it went at the end where he just helped went out and just wanted to get everyone together and that whole punk portal was also hard i mean so we had i bet Kobe, we had his world there were a few shots of his world and then we had that portal and we had to make that portal look like it was based off the same technology as Miguel's portal, but in a punk style. So we had all the cutout pieces of paper, but you can see the hexagons in there and, and sort of the portal itself, but it's sort of like a, sort of like his, you know, his technology's version of the 2099 technology, which is interesting. So it's kind of like an inception of technologies going on with that. It's it. It's, it's right. It's just there's so much depth. That's, that's why I keep saying, okay. Um, one of the things that I took away from the film, um, if I said I wanted more Peter B. Parker, because he's such a vital part of Into the Spider Verse, and you know, I I said it on the review, and I I said it in a in a strange way. It's not to say that Miles can't carry his movie. Mm -hmm. that's that's not the point the point is into the spider-verse is as much peter's story as it is miles you are learning miles's story peter is the guy you know right. whether it's that version of the guy you know 
you have been with him since you are five. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And in this film, if there is a criticism of this film, and the only reason why I think, right, again, without having seen two multiple times, yeah. my one thing is Miles is now standing on its own and there was something missing. Mm. And it's not that Miles can't do it and Miles can be Spider-Man. If you want to make a live action Miles Morales Spider-Man, go for it. Do it. But in this, remember, he half the scenes that he's in and into the Spider-Verse, yeah. there's Peter Parker and he's wearing the classic costume, even though he's overweight and this and all these different things. He still has the classic costume and you see the classic costume so little mm. in this yeah. movie. Right. I, I wanted to get your thought. I, you know, well, I, you know, I, I, in Jake Johnson is so great as that character. I think, you know, for me, you know, this movie had so many characters to balance, and I think they they did a good job at, at keeping that balance. And I think, you know, in the first one, Miles is younger, Peter is his mentor, mentor, and now time has passed, and you know, relationships evolve and they change. And I feel like didn't see him in a him in a while, so he kind of like if everything had just kind of been almost like it was before, I feel like things have changed. It's like, you know, you go away, you come back, things aren't the same. That's kind of my take on it. You know, Peter now has made it. He's got, a, he's had a kid. He's, he's back with MJ. You know, it's been a year and a half since he saw Miles. So it's almost like, I would, I'd love that character. I would love to see more of him, but I think, you but know. But you can't make a four hour movie. You can't make a four-hour movie, and I think it's fine if things are just not the same. They are different, and you know you have that moment of them in the uh, in the underbelly of 2099 when they're in the gears and they're on top of the vent, and and they yeah. kind of have that moment, and you know you you kind of you're kind of rehashing, rekindling the relationship from the first movie, and then you know Peter you know inadvertently leaves all the spider people there, and it kind of violates that friendship, and mm-hmm. and I thought that moment was kind of the closest that you had to that into the Spider-Verse relationship moment. Um, but I kind of, I, I, you know, like I said, I'd love to see more of him, but I kind of accepted that he just couldn't play as big of a role because it was, right. this was kind of a bigger story with more to balance. Uh, but who knows, maybe in the next one, there'll be more of them. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And you want to talk about deep. I mean, there's that one scene where Miguel admits that there was a, uh, he pr- tried to replace a dead version of himself from another yes. universe. And that uh-huh. guy had a happy family, but then that universe collapsed. And like, he's, he, he's, he's even more driven than you'd think, you know, like, like to give his motivation, it, even the parts that are not visual, the story is deep and, 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 and dense. There's so much there. There's a lot to just think about and there's like deep storylines and just deep character arcs and those shots where we showed in like holographic form as he's recounting and telling Miles about it. We see his daughter evaporate in his arms and we wanted to just drive that home. You see her looking up at him and um, and then you see Miles' reaction afterwards and as the world is falling apart, it's going past him like this sort of avalanche or like just kind of a rush of water of, of artifacts of the world as it disintegrates it's uh, really emotional uh, that, that whole it was actually two whole sequences where miles is in that space miguel where he's explaining about everything and then all the spider people closed in on him and we were kind of 
you know, there was just a lot to balance with how all the spider people looked and how they're in the background and they came forward. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's, there's a lot going on. There's a deep story, there's a deep emotion. And we, you know, you want every character to be like a, a real person. They're not evil. They're not good. There's something in between. Everyone has their motivations. And I thought that was what was, what the movie did well. It's like, everyone's got layers of why they do things. Now tell Sony to do like a six episode miniseries just on Miguel. <laughs> the all Miguel's backstory. That would be unbelievable. I would love to do spin-off. There's so oh many my God. We'll do a Spider-Ham movie. You know, or Spider-Noir. Of course. Uh, well, then, well, and then, then they get a, uh, cameos, which is cool when they, when they show up and you're yeah. like, wait a minute, I know that guy. I know, I know that guy. Um, right. We did not talk a lot about Miles's parents. We talked about Captain Stacy. Um, again, the performances, uh, Luna Lauren Velez and Brian Tyree Henry. Um, I said during the review, Brian Tyree Henry is in this uh, incredible movie with Jennifer Lawrence called Causeway, uh-huh. um, where he's nominated for an award. He he should be. I mean, yeah. she's great. She's great in everything she is. But she's in. But but he steals that movie and uh, just I, there's new depths to what he can do. And it's really funny because in the first movie, I tried not to do the name the voice guy kind of thing. Like you get roped into the story. In this one, I knew them because those were the returning characters. So I was looking to see what, what that was like. Uh, tell me about the parents. And then because you are the visual guy, when it's the other parents, when he's in the other world and you don't know that right away. Yeah try to make them look exactly the same or are there subtle differences that the audience may not know? Yeah. So, I mean, I loved Jefferson's performance. Isles' dad. I mean, he was almost the comic relief at times and he's, he was so just expressive scenes of him in the counselor's office kind of, you know, he's got a, he has Miles' back, you know, I just loved, you know, how he came off. He was so funny. The, the scene of him and, and, and Miles as Spider-Man when they're looking over the Fitz construction site and they have that moment, you know, I don't know if you, if you noticed, but we kind of treated the top of the, the tarps almost like they're looking out over the water. That was kind of how they, they were supposed to be kind of almost looking out over the sea when they have that moment together. But he was just fantastic. Loved his character. And then Rio, uh, his mom, I mean, who was really barely in the first movie. She right. did not have many scenes. So when we uh, started this film up, we had to sort of revamp how she was built and created so she could stand on her own as a major character. We had to, you know, redo her, how her hair was done, build new costumes for her, kind mm. of finesse just how she was built because she had played a major role. And I just thought they were just the most convincing parents. Like, yeah. you just, their personalities, the chemistry. The block party. Yeah. it. Yeah, you just yeah. it. And, and I love just Jefferson's relationship with Miles as Spider-Man, how they kind of, they're kind of like a, a comedic duo at times, like when, when they're confronting Spot in the site and he's like, you know, why did you create that guy? He's like, I didn't create him. I didn't mean to create him. It's really, really great. And then- Well, I want, I want him, not to cut you off, but I wanted him to tell his real parents because yeah. I hated that they, they, they disapproved so much and they, they didn't trust him. And right. he's doing such an admirable thing and they're not, and I understand why. And I, I, I get the point of secret identities, but there's somebody you trust. 
And, you know, it's killing Miles he has to lie. We have that whole sort of dream sequence where you see his parents eating dinner and Miles is watching the TV and he throws up the couch and his parents come in and they all hug and they, they yeah, accept yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why at the end of the film, when he's in Earth 42 and he thinks he's talking to his mom, he has a moment and then he reveals himself. And obviously she's never heard of Spider-Man because in Earth 42, there is no Spider-Man. And the there are subtle differences and we didn't want the audience to realize that he had gone to a different dimension at first. So once Miles shows up, he's running on rooftops, he's running through the streets. And the visual style for Earth 42 is one of, is probably my favorite. It's gritty, it's dark, it's harsh, but we sort of tease it in. And then when you see him talking to his mom in the bedroom, which is also subtly different, the bedroom is different, you see line work and ink splatter. And when you look at Rio, she's got line work and visual cues that she doesn't have on um, the barbecue rooftop and when you're seeing her in Miles' world. So there are little things that then slowly get enhanced. And then when Uncle Aaron shows up and Miles figures out where he is, you lean into that visual style and it just kind of goes bonkers from there. But, you know, when he's in that, in his, in uh, the other Miles' bedroom, having that moment with, with Rio, um, we just kind of tease it in. And if you're paying attention now and go back, you'll notice it all. But colors are different. Even down to her eyes are lit a little bit differently. Uh, the way the light hits her, um, you know, what Miles is wearing, he's wearing the other Miles' clothing, so it's a bit different. Uh, but just a lot of subtlety that then amps up once he realizes it. It's, like, it's, it's nuts. But to your I question, saying, I keep saying it's nuts. I, it is nuts. It's nuts. there is so much. There's so much going on in the film. It's it's kind of mind boggling, and um, you literally do have to see it a bunch of times to take it all in. I mean, it's, it's very dense. It's very dense. Uh, the, uh, the 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 end. You know, when he finds out that there this other Miguel is, you know, he's not Spider Man in this this world, and he's in this world, and there's another Miguel who's the the, the Prowler. Um, yeah. uh, it's just it, it's a twist you weren't yeah. expecting it and you know in this day and age where social media spoils everything and I, when I say spoil spoils everything like I will give you an example when the live action Spider-Man No Way Home came out uh-huh. I saw both Tobey Maguire's and Andrew Garfield's appearances on TikTok mm, like nice. there was no way to avoid it and all I, I had to do was, was you don't even have to like a video on TikTok. You just watch a video on TikTok yeah. and you'll see 10 more like it. And mm-hmm. before I saw the movie, I, I saw the scenes where they were in. Right. So like, it's really hard to surprise me. I know. And it's, yeah, the, the, end, the end is just, uh, it's a what? And th- this is when I was saying, I was like, what? Because this is after you see over a hundred different Spider-Men and I'm trying to find out and I'm looking. And then I was like, I'm going to have this dumb idea. I'm going to look it up while I'm watching the movie. And I'm like, I can't, I'm missing too much. I was so confused. I need this effing movie on home video. (laughs) Like You've seen it. How many times, how many times have you seen this movie? I mean, you know, I, (laughs) I've I've spent years watching port, you know, this movie evolve. I mean, the movie, the whole movie start to finish, I mean, in its final state, at least 10 times. 10. Uh, but, yeah, you know. 10. You're talking at 10. I saw it for once. Right. In a movie theater where I couldn't ask the guy, hey, pause this. Slow right. down. 
Yeah. But also living and breathing the sequences for years, you oh, know. Sure. But um, I remember though when I found out that the other miles was the prowler. And I and you know, there it was a shock to me because you know that's the story going. And I was like, wow, that is an amazing idea to do that. And he's got a great costume that you don't see much of, but I'll tell you, it's like my favorite costume in the film. It is awesome. It is mostly silhouetted. You get like shots from the waist up. You don't really see the whole thing, but right. it is great. And we did a whole mask for him. We built this mask that could, you know, the eyes light up as digital projections and they turn off and the thing retracts back over his face. Oh my God. Intricate setup. And he's got the, you know, he puts the glove on and you think Aaron is going to put it on, but he tosses it to Miles and he puts yep. it on oh. and face to face. We, what's interesting in one of the final scenes of the film where you get the Miles from Earth 42 looking at our Miles and they're face to face. We wanted the audience to know they were the same person, but we also had to make them look a little different. We have different types of line work. The hair is different. The way we graphically treated the faces is different enough that they feel like different characters, but they're also the same. Um, but yeah, crazy twist moment at the end. After you've seen all these other spider people, there's like what's oh, left that you can do. Um, but I love, love the Prowler and the Prowler music is just haunting. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great music. Yeah. Um, all right. In closing, uh, let's just talk cameos. <laughs> there's ones that you have the voices. Like you have Yuri Lowenthal in this mm -hmm. uh, from the, the video game. You have Josh Keaton in this. Again, these are veterans of the Hall of Justice podcast. Um, Andy and Sandberg as Ben Riley. And we did work with Insomniac and uh, bringing that character to life. And we, we, we got that character looking exactly like their model, moving on ones like you would in the video. Oh, you game. consulted with them? You, you talked to them? Yeah, I mean, we yeah, we That's definitely cool. you know wanted to kind of work because they're you know they're you know one of our sister companies and you know wanted to make sure we were making them look right. So we wanted to be as authentic as possible. <laughs> uh, so, but sorry, I, I had to keep going. No, no, I just it, it goes on and on. I mean, Jessica Drew, the classic costume, uh, Spider Man Unlimited, which is crazy, and you know, Spider Man Unlimited. There's a there's a not so veiled reference to that show in the live action Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Mm. Uh, the whole high evolutionary is from the, that show. Right. And I couldn't believe that James Gunn went there. That, that show is seen by like, I think more people have heard the Hall of Justice podcast than saw Spider-Man Unlimited. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I saw every episode of it. I, I, cause I was in, you know, the nineties, I've, I've said all along, to me, the, 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 the greatest incarnation of Spider-Man um, was the 90s animated. It's better mm -hmm. than Tobey Maguire, the Andrew Garfield, the Tom Holland. Everything live action, that iteration. And, you know, yeah. I've talked about the scene, you know, the people listening to this podcast know where Mary Jane falls down the, the, the bridge and Peter's searching and Christopher Daniel Barnes' performance. He's, wow. he's been drawn. I yeah. mean, he's, he, and, and you can even see his face and you can see the desperation. I, it's just, it's remarkable. And I, I saw it when I was in college. I was, I was at Syracuse when that, when that show came out. Yeah. But Spider-Man Unlimited is a spinoff of that. And so, like, I saw that guy and I was like, oh my God, that guy. Um, Ultimate Spider-Man uh, from the original show, the 1960s show, 
mm-hmm. video man from Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I, I mean, we actually had two video oh. men. We actually had a, even a guy. Uh, we had video man, Spider-Man. We had a green goblin. Um, yep. from, that sh- from a video game. The yeah. old video game. Uh, we had Max Born. We had so many characters, you know, all masterfully, you know, designed and adapted by the Sony Animation, including Chris Anka team. I mean, amazing stuff. And then um, the live action stuff, the live action appearances. Tobin McGuire's in this movie and Andrew Garfield's in this movie. And, the, 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 and you know, the, uh, the Glover scenes. Yeah, Donald the, Glover, of course. We actually shot him and they made a suit for him and you know, we wanted to get him in there. Uh, we had to make that that Andrew Garfield moment sort of fit in the film. You know, it's live action, but we still have to make them not stick out. Those shots right. from Venom, and, and you know, that we had yep. to put the spot into. I mean, there's just a lot of that. We had our whole Lego so sequences uh, created by a 14-year-old kid did our Lego sequences, which was amazing. That's awesome. Um, there's just so much of that. And we actually built 150 unique spider characters and then we had a system to create more generic characters so we could create hundreds and hundreds more so you know and then we built like 50 villains um and there was a if you get the art book you'll see that there was a bar it was called the bar with no name which was a villain bar we'd originally built all these villains for but the sequence ended up not being the film so now we have all these villains uh you see them all in the prison cages and this and that uh, but just so many characters, the tarantula, Spider-Man, yep. and all the arms, and um, it's just endless. It's endless. It's it's endless. Yeah, yeah. So much fun. So much fun. But the but except for the the, the 90s, the one guy, <laughs> the one guy. But that's all right. That's all right. I remember yeah. when he did uh, that Spider-Verse. You know, he that show kind of created the Spider-Verse. At the end, they go see Stan Lee. Uh-huh. And I remember you guys had Stanley in Into the Spider Verse. It just it, it, it's uh, it all comes uh, full circle. I mean, ben Riley, uh, Scarlet Spider, Ben Riley. You know, we really spent yeah. a lot of his work. Uh, we actually had muscles that could be built on top of other muscles to enhance his like over the top your physique <laughs> styling. Well, and if he's in the third one, like I know you can't tell me anything, but I have to ask because they'll take my my press card away here. I, I used to call it my Daily Planet uh, press pass. Um, is three more than two? <laughs> like, is it just, is it, do you take this and double down on this? You know, I, I can't say anything, but, you know. There is a third. There is a, yes, there will be a third. And I think it's safe to assume it's going to be big. Um, beyond that, I can't say anything. Okay. I know you got asked. I I tried. I tried. I tried. You have been uh, very, very uh, active on social media. I I love the photos of your family at the premiere. I was so happy for you. I thought this was so stinking cool. I love the stuff. You know, the the artists, they love the work. I think it comes out in the work. And you can't make this stuff without passion. And, you know, I think doing the first one, like, rewired everybody just to want to make new things no one's ever seen before kind of conquer challenges figure out new ways to create art and uh i just love that the audience responds to it all that's our what we always hope is everything we're doing everyone's going to get it and see it and kind of get what we're doing and that's was so amazing you know it's just it's just passion it comes down to that i appreciate it 
Um, so that this is your next project. You're you're now working on the third because the third one's not the the amount of time between the second and third is less than the first and second. <laughs> all, all I'll say no, that's that. been released. That's that's been announced. I'm not asking for something out of school. Like there's a release date for the second, the third one. Right. All, all, all I can't. I I really just can't say anything about. Okay, it. you're not even working on it. You don't. You know. You didn't. You haven't read it. You don't know anything. That's I'm sorry. March 29th, 2024. March 29th, 2024. That's when the, uh, the the next one comes out. Whether you have anything to do with it or not, it's fine. How about this? Don't work on the film. Come back and you can review it with me. Then we'll, we'll review it together. Great. That sounds great. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how things shake out. But, you know, I love this stuff. So, you know. God, what's not to love? What's not to love? It's uh, it's 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 a... It's a massive, massive undertaking. And it's just, it's a movie that you can't see once. That's it, it, really what it is. And COVID has changed. COVID has changed. I, I'll admit, I am more conducive because I like to take notes and, and stuff. The movie theater experience is different for me. Mm. You know, what I do now is I go, there's a movie theater in, in my town that shows these movies at like 11 in the morning. And I go because I can sit by myself and I can take notes and I'm not the dick, you know, on their phone yeah. during the, the movie and stuff, right. like, stuff like that. And, you know, that whole experience is not what it used to be, you know, like since Endgame, I think. But yeah. the first Spider-Verse I saw in the theaters at a, at a Marvel screening and it was just nuts. Uh, this is nuts. This is a crazy, crazy film. Um it is a crowning achievement. I know you're, you know, you're a young man, so you're going to have bigger and better, but my God, to have this on your resume, to, to be able to just tell people I worked on this, you want to see what I can do? Here's this. And people will be like, Ugh. well, it's funny because it, like we, we, this restaurant we go to, you know, the way the waitress told her, and then we went back again. She's like, Oh, I was just telling someone about you. And like, I went to Starbucks this morning and other barista and then, you know, he showed me this video on his phone of this amazing cosplayer doing Hobie that everyone's been talking about. And then then this other Brisa came over. She's like, she's, a, you know, because he'd been talking to her about me and how she does it too. And she dresses up. So it's kind of like people get really excited when they find out you worked on this film. It's, yeah, it's really, it's been amazing. It's hard it. to, it's a lot, it's overwhelming, to be honest with you. You don't really know how to re react to it. So. Well, I, it, 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 it's, it, again, it's so rare in this decade to have something that the biggest criticism is that people didn't know it was a cliffhanger. <laughs> like think about that. That's no, nuts. Totally. That's nuts. Uh, Daniel Pemberton did the music uh, again. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, how can people find you online? You're a, you're a fa You're a fun follow. If you like this stuff, my goodness, the stuff that you share is so cool. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm mostly active on Twitter uh, for better or worse. Uh, <laughs> right for now for now it's at m lasker uh that's where you'll find most of my posts about this film uh i'm on instagram to mike dot lasker but i typically just keep all of the spider-verse stuff to twitter kind of focus it all in one place basically so if it all goes and blows up then you can deny everything right yeah 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 <laughs> uh michael congratulations on uh your success uh, again, the film Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, it's just, it, it, it's massive. And we had to do 
the episode the way we, we did the episode. Thanks for doing this. And we'll see you next year for number three. It was great being back, and I look forward to next time. That is Michael Lasker again. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is still in theaters. I just can't wait for it to be on streaming because I need to see it again and again and again like I'm sure you do. Next week, Michael Uslan returns. We'll be talking about everything after the George Clooney Batman and Robin. That covers the Dark Knight trilogy with Christian Bale, all the Ben Affleck stuff, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie, and much, much more about the future of Batman on screen. So Michael Uslan, part two, coming up next week right here on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.